0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 126, An Exarchate and an Empire. First, as always, thank you to our newest patron, known mysteriously only as G. Thanks a lot, G, and thank you to everyone else who supports the show. As I mentioned before, I've been able to really kind of kid out this office and turn it into a proper recording space, and I am loving it. I'm recording in the more comfortable way than I ever have in the seven years I've been doing this, so huge thanks to all of you. Last time, an Ottoman sultan visited Western Europe for the first time. Levski and Karavelov were both arrested, only to escape so Levski could tour Bulgaria to set up secret revolutionary organizations, while Karavelov wrote and organized back in Bucharest. Haji Dmitr and Stefan Karadje led 120 men into Bulgaria and to their deaths after facing off with ottoman forces ivan kasabov formed the temporary government in the balkans while the whole group including levski karavelov and others formed the bulgarian revolutionary central committee or the brcc with these groups despite the failure of the latest cheta kind of activities bulgarian revolutionary activity was better organized and really more prepared than ever before Meanwhile, the Tanzimat began to draw to a close while the church question also entered its final stage. And that's where we'll pick up today. By the early 1870, the joint Greek-Bulgarian committee had still not come to a conclusion and the Ottoman government had really given up on finding a compromise with the patriarchate. Arguing that essentially this was no longer a religious issue, but a political one, the sultan issued a firman, a kind of decree, we've talked about them before, around late February, early March, announcing their intention to establish a Bulgarian exarchate, It was a huge victory, which decades of hard work by hundreds and thousands of Bulgarians and foreigners had led to. Since the first murmurings of discontent against the Greek clergy had begun around the 1820s, now, more than half a century later, Bulgaria was still not independent, but it well was set to have at least an independent church. A proclamation of this news was read aloud in the main Bulgarian church in Constantinople, no doubt to much cheering. However, the fine print was extremely important as well, because this church wasn't set to be completely independent. It was still supposed to technically be under the authority of the patriarch, who had to be mentioned in the liturgy, for example. In addition, the boundaries of the exarchate were not set. Fifteen regions were set to go to the Bulgarian church. Ruse, Silistra, Schumann, Ternovol, Sofia, Vratsa, Lovech, Vidin, Nish, Pirot, Kysendil, Samokov, Veles, Varna, and Plovdiv although R.J. Crampton notes that Varna and Most of Plovdiv did end up remaining with the Patriarchate. Now, for the remaining disputed diocese, the rule was that if two-thirds of the inhabitants of a district voted to join the Bulgarian church, they would be allowed to do so. It doesn't take a genius, though, to see that this, far from simply ending the church issue, was really setting the stage for more conflict over the boundaries of that church. And indeed, all of this was effectively a proposal if a strong one, from the Ottomans, and, unsurprisingly, the Patriarch immediately rejected it, setting the stage for years of further conflict. Indeed, within weeks of the firman being issued, with the agreement of the Ottoman government, the Bulgarians of Constantinople organized a 40-person assembly, choosing ten notables, who, along with five Bulgarian lords, formed a kind of temporary mixed committee, whose job was to work out the details of how the exarchate would function and how they could choose an exarch. Now, the Ottomans were correct in asserting that this was a political issue more than anything by this point. The great Russian writer Dostoevsky himself wrote some years after the fact that, quote, The Greek-Bulgarian church dispute we recently witnessed was ultimately nothing more than a national conflict in clerical garb and can to a degree be regarded as an omen for the future. When the ecumenical patriarch reproached the disobedient Bulgarians and excommunicated them, he stressed that one should sacrifice neither the church's ritual nor the obedience due to the church in favor of the new and destructive principle of nationality. But in fact, he himself made use of precisely this nationality principle when he imposed the ban on the Bulgarians. The only difference being that he made use of it in favor of the Greeks and to the de- detriment of the Slavs. In short, one can predict with some certainty that as soon as the sick man expires, then unrest and conflict will break out all over the Balkans at the first opportunity. End quote. Clearly, Dostoevsky had some points there. The principle of nationality was becoming more prominent in the Balkans as it had for a while in the rest of Europe. It's a bit of a delay, obviously. It's an idea, and ideas weren't spreading extremely quickly during the 19th century. But newspapers and and pamphlets and all these things, we've seen Bulgarian revolutionaries and everyday Bulgarians getting more involved with. All those are increasing that pace. And again, I think we can pretty clearly see that, you know, it's not like the Bulgarians wanted the church to be kind of run differently, aside from less corruption and things like that. But There's a reason why this this kind of dispute arose in the 19th century. It really is tied very deeply with nationality, and it is a harbinger of things to come, without a doubt. Now, while a major political battle was beginning to brew over in Constantinople about how this church would kind of be in its actual form, right, not just as a proposal or a theory, another kind of fight was continuing in Bulgaria proper. In late May of 1870, Vasilevsky crossed back into Bulgaria to build a network of committees to undertake preparations for future revolution. He had grown frustrated since his last trip with the lack of action and results from the Bulgarian emigrant community in Romania. In about a year and a half, he managed to form committees in just about every decent sized Bulgarian settlement, laying the foundations for the Internal Revolutionary Organization, Fereo. And he put the Lovic Committee at the helm, a.k.a. the temporary government in Bulgaria. We'll talk more about them later. The connections with the Bucharest Committee were established through a man named Daniel Popov, who was a Bulgarian trader living in Tornomargorele, which is just across the Danube from Nicopol in Romania. So... Based from the Romanian side, he was kind of a communication link between the Bucharest-centered organization and the Lovic-centered organization. The kind of planning bit, the more theoretical bit, the one publishing things and creating propaganda and making international connections, and the kind of more action-oriented folks on the ground. Now, despite Levsky's belief that waiting for external support was foolish and that action must be taken now, the Bulgarian Revolutionary Central Committee was still seeking support from outside powers. On the 1st of August, 1870, the program of the BRCC was published in Geneva on the pages of the Russian immigrant magazine Delo*, National Affairs. The program had been created that spring by Karovelov and mostly aimed to free Bulgaria and foresaw the use of both peaceful and armed, armed actions to do that. Karovelov also defended the idea of the creation of a Danubian federation in which all nationalities would have equal rights. Months later, the program was also published in the Bucharest newspaper Svoboda, Freedom. At the same time, Karovelov published the brochure Bulgarian Voice in Bucharest. In it, he defended the idea that Bulgaria can only be freed through revolutionary actions and that the future country must be a republic and not a monarchy. Again, as I mentioned in the last episode, this points to important differences amongst those advocating for change in Bulgaria's status. Plenty supported a monarchy while the BRCC desired a republic. Rokovsky had believed that Chetty in Bulgaria would trigger the uprising needed to free others, while Levsky and Karavelov believed that a smaller, well-trained force could accomplish the task much better. Late in that year, some potential external help did arrive, when Dmitry Tsenovic, a member of the BRCC from Svistov but living in Bucharest, received a letter from the Serbian political activist Alimpie Vasilovich inviting him to Belgrade on behalf of the Serbian government to discuss common actions against the Ottomans. Although the First Balkan Alliance was dead and buried, it seemed the door was opening to more joint actions. Now, wrapping up the year, 1870 also saw a match factory built in Samokov and the publication of 95 books and 20 periodicals in Bulgarian. Now, getting into 1871, I want to begin this year by discussing a single enormous event which, although it didn't happen in Bulgaria, really defined the year in European history and will have a profound effect on Bulgaria's future. Now, you'll remember that the Austro-Prussian War of 1866 had dramatically remade the political and geographic map of Central Europe. The North German Confederation was now a powerful state, dominating German-speaking lands outside of Austria, which had been forced to form the Austro-Hungarian joint empire in response to this weakness, and had now focused its attention more towards the Balkans than it had in many centuries. Well, Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck had orchestrated that war to lay the groundwork for establishing a united German state under Prussian dominance, and the final obstacle to that goal was France. The 1866 war had upset the balance of power, and France had demanded land in return, but Bismarck refused. Now, Prussia was looking to incorporate the final southern German states into a confederation, and France was again dead set against it, meaning a showdown was setting up for the two great powers. Fortunately for Bismarck, with the hot-headed nature of French Emperor Napoleon III and this geopolitical reality He could start a war basically when he liked and ensure that France would be the aggressor, minimizing the likelihood that other powers would feel justified in joining the war against Prussia on the French side. But in July 1870, Bismarck leaked a telegram about a recent diplomatic disagreement over the Spanish throne which he knew would provoke France to declare war. And well, it worked perfectly. He got his wish. France declared war that summer, which pushed the southern German states to join in defending the North German Confederation. France planned for a defensive war and assumed the Austro-Hungarians and the southern German states would join its side. However, they were dead wrong on all counts. Instead, again, the southern German states joined the North German Confederation, and Austria-Hungary stayed out. So, instead, the Prussians mobilized, far faster than the French had anticipated, and despite a mild French invasion of their territory, the Prussians, i.e. the North German Confederation, quickly invaded northeastern France and won a series of decisive encounters with their superior technology, tactics, training, and numbers. Within a few months, the emperor himself was captured, and each new army the French raised was itself defeated in detail until Paris itself was besieged on the first days of 1871. During this time, the war triggered a revolutionary uprising in Paris called the Paris Commune. This radical socialist state, formed in the city, attempted to fight off the German forces and, at the same time, fight the official French government. Needless to say, this did not exactly help the French resistance, and in a way you could think of this as a minor French civil war in the midst of the greater war. Soon, the citizens of Paris were starving, and the city surrendered simply to allow food to reach it again. And within days of this informal one, the formal surrender on the part of the actual French government came. Months later, the French army finished putting down the French Commune. However, the Commune would serve as a beacon for revolutionary hopes, inspiring many socialists, anarchists, and other left-leaning revolutionaries really until this very day, including many Bulgarians. Meanwhile, though, the government of Napoleon III was overthrown and the Third French Republic was proclaimed. So, France went back to being a republic after Napoleon had made one mistake too many and killed the idea of another French empire. Now, as a result of all this, on the 18th of January, 1871, in the Hall of Mirrors at the Versailles Palace, Wilhelm, the King of Prussia, was proclaimed the emperor of the newly formed German Empire. With this, Germany was no longer a federation, something it had essentially been since the Holy Roman Empire in the Middle Ages. Germany was now a unified nation-state. Now that Germany was unified and tremendously powerful, it became the preeminent power on the continent essentially overnight. France was dramatically weakened, full of desire for revenge, but unable to do much about it. As we know, the Austro-Hungarians were severely weakened, and, well, Russia was still not really where it used to be prior to the Crimean War of the 1850s. And so suddenly Germany was just looking almost overpowered on the European stage. Now, overall, looking at it, this war finished what had begun in 1866, the complete destruction of the balance of power system which had been established following the Napoleonic Wars. No one knew exactly what was going to happen in Europe next, but it was clear that the relative calm and sort of peaceful period between this period and the Napoleonic Wars That was largely over. Now with this change, Russia made one of the first and most dramatic moves, taking advantage of everyone's distraction by announcing its withdrawal from the 1856 Treaty of Paris which had ended the Crimean War. In essence, this meant that Russia was going to re-establish a military presence along and on the Black Sea. This new projection of power meant that Russian influence in the Balkans could expand even further, and it could put even more pressure on everyone involved to figure out what would happen with the people in the lands of the Balkans in the future. So, with this, you can imagine Bulgaria can now expect a lot more Russian pressure and influence and all of that. In Romania in particular, the Franco-Prussian War had really profound effects, and it was almost like a dagger right at the weakest point of Romanian society. Now, we've kind of mentioned this before, but Romania as a whole saw France as its principal patron and really favored France. However, the prince, Carol, was from a branch of the Prussian royal family and so clearly favored Germany. This kind of mismatch triggered an uprising in the country which was put down. However, the jury let those responsible for the uprising go free, leading the prince to feel very directly attacked by the government institutions. In response, he wrote a letter to the great powers, but none of them were really interested in helping him shore up his position because they were all a little bit preoccupied with the aftermath of the war. Then, in the spring of 1871, when the German citizens of Bucharest held a celebration of the German victory, they were attacked by a mob. As blood spilled, the police only watched. And in light of all these events, Prince Carol informed the prime minister that he intended to resign, feeling he could simply no longer run the country considering the political situation. However, the prince was reassured that there was no need to do this, and in response, a joint government was formed, which finally stabilized Romania by bringing together the liberals and the conservatives, and which ultimately allowed Prince Carol to really focus more on Romanian foreign policy. Okay, now getting back to Bulgarian events. Now, although the firman to establish the Exarchate was nearly a year old by the 1st of January 1871, the process of implementing it was just getting started. On that day, the Temporary Bulgarian Synod, uh, kind of the temporary church organization, sent a plea to Bulgarian municipalities in the disputed areas of the Exarchate asking them to send delegates to an upcoming national church assembly. That assembly began two months later in Constantinople. By mid-May, they had drawn up a series of laws to govern the Exarchate and presented them to the Ottoman government. Soon, a new patriarch was put in power with the help of the Russian ambassador Ignatieff, no doubt aiming to find the right candidate to finalize the church issue. The new patriarch, Antim VI, met with notable Bulgarians to discuss the borders of the Exarchate, but hopes were not high, with one Bulgarian participant writing, quote, all of our people think nothing will come of these committees. They will hold four or five so the world, and especially the Russians, can see what the Patriarchate intends to do, but nothing will come of it. End quote. So, by the end of 1871, new negotiations were beginning, but they again failed to reach an agreement between the Bulgarians and the Patriarchate. So, by the time 1872 dawned, it had been two full years since the Sultan's Firman, and little had been agreed upon. The Bulgarians involved in the process were fast losing patience. But, changing tacks here, patience was not running out at the BRCC. Early in the year, Levsky wrote a letter to Filip Totyo in Odessa and Paniot Hitov in Belgrade, inviting these sort of grand voivodas with a lot of experience to actively take part in the BRCC. Now evidently, Totio was planning another Cheta incursion, and Levski urged him to reconsider, arguing that these moves only served as a kind of bloodletting, which robbed the movement of its best fighters without accomplishing very much. But Levski had a difficult time persuading these two old-timers that their Cheta tactics were outdated and that they should defer to the BRCC instead of leading the movement themselves. Their correspondence would continue for quite some time as Levski tried desperately to convince them to lend their support to his activities and those of the BRCC. Elsewhere, Levski was writing a template for letters he would send to prominent Bulgarians, asking them to contribute funds to the BRCC, and if they didn't agree, there was some vaguely threatening language to help persuade them. In the letters, he went into more detail about what his vision for an independent Bulgaria was, writing, in my kind of rough translation, Quote, there will not be a king but a national government, and everyone will have their own religion the Bulgarian, Turk, Jew, etc. They will all be equal before the law. It will be a free and pure republic. End quote. Now, again, I'm emphasizing that this vision for Bulgaria was not shared by everyone, but Levski at least was being quite clear about his goals. Whether it was wise for him to be so clear and upfront, or whether it would have benefited him to be a little more vague and play politics and, you know, try... To, you can imagine, these kinds of cases, being a little more vague about uh, what an independent Bulgaria will look like might allow you to gain more support of people who might disagree with some of those details. Well, it's up to you whether you think Levsky should have been more vague and diplomatic, or whether it was best for him to be decisive in this moment. Now, that same month, he also wrote to Daniel Popov, remember, who was kind of the liaison between the Bucharest and Lovach portions of the BRCC, to organize the main headquarters between these two folks, so to kind of continue doing this job. And, well, despite his boundless energy, Rokovsky, remember, had not managed this level of organization. Levsky at this point was reaching out to all kinds of older, more experienced revolutionaries, recruiting new ones. He was looking for support from wealthy Bulgarians, foreign governments, It was clear at this point that the BRCC had really just taken everything to the next level from Rokovsky's organization. And at this moment, though, the main government of the BRCC, the organization in Bucharest, had its eye on getting more Serbian support. Now, as we know, Serbia hadn't been terribly consistent in its policy towards Bulgarian revolutionaries and the BRCC... I mentioned earlier, sent Dmitry Tsenovic to Belgrade after he was contacted by the Serbs so he could begin negotiations for more concrete support. When Tsenovic arrived in March, he met with the Prime Minister, but unfortunately I couldn't find any detailed information on what resulted from these negotiations. However, Levski did write a letter objecting to the negotiations on the grounds that they were premature, and to do so before preparations for the uprising were more complete was a mistake. Around this time, it was also decided that the primary revolutionary committee within Bulgaria in the de facto capital would be, as I mentioned, Lovetsk. In the spring of summer and summer of 1871, BRCC members began to gather there, and in late August, the committee held a meeting in a vineyard near the town. Dmitr Obšti was selected as the person to run the region from Lovetsk to Tetevan and to Sofia. But a few months later, they met again and decided to ask more compatriots to work independently, so... Lovic would still be the kind of main headquarters of activities within Bulgarian lands, but they wanted to have more autonomy for the other committees. Now, as you may have noticed, Kar- with Karavelov and the BRCC in Serbia receiving money from the Serbs and Levski speaking out against such actions, the bigger result here was that over the course of 1870 and 1871, resentment was beginning to brew between Revolutionaries like Karavelov, who kept up the fight through publishing literature in Bucharest, and the more active on the ground participants like Levski, who insisted on direct action in Bulgaria itself. In fact, the committees of the BRCC in Lovac and Bucharest were at this point barely communicating with each other, despite Daniel Popov's assignment to kind of be the liaison between them. So we're beginning to see a rift. Now, when these two kind of portions of the BRCC did communicate, The dynamics were essentially that Levski welcomed constructive criticism and invited those who disagreed with his tactics to participate more. So, you know, it's like, okay, if you disagree with me, tell me why, you know, give me some constructive feedback and we can implement those changes. And, you know, I really would love if you'd come here and work with me and we can improve everything together. We can fix the things you don't like together and get this done. Uh, While this is, I think, a pretty admirable way of approaching it, pretty open-minded, it didn't find much success. And the divide was now increasingly between those in Bulgaria who insisted on independent action without waiting on outside powers, and those in Bucharest who wished to focus more again on publishing, writing letters, gathering political support, and trying to get support from outside powers. Now, frankly, both elements were important, but the rift was a troubling sign. And with that rift, with that troubling sign, we'll wrap up today's episode. Bulgaria finally, kind of, has its exarchate, but it very much remains to be seen what that will mean in practice. A German empire has been proclaimed, and Europe has a new great power, whose opinions on Bulgaria are not yet clear, but whose opinions will be very important, no doubt. And France and Austria-Hungary have been humbled by their successive wars. Russia, for its part, is feeling emboldened. Lastly, revolutionary activities are progressing quickly, but with the growing rift Within the BRCC, there's concern that the approaches of Lesky and Karavelov might divide even further and break apart the wider movement for an independent Bulgaria. Next time, we'll see what happens as these two sides attempt to reconcile. We'll see what happens when the Bulgarian exarchate is finally created, and Europe will settle into its new geopolitical normal as the continent wrestles with what it will do in response to this new country of Germany. Thank you all for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out the, on pause for now, Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And the subreddit is linked in the episode description, so you can check that out too. And I'll catch you in the next one.